Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. This is going to be a very, very different episode. As you can see, uh, we are not in our normal spots, and we have the very cool opportunity. We're actually in the same room together. Mike and I literally just drove into Rhode Island, where we're going to be teaching a a workshop tomorrow, our live principles of program design course at the Perform Better headquarters. And we said, for our next episode, let's do something a little different. We have a ton of questions we've been getting uh, through our social media, and we wanted to start to answer some of those, because if someone's asking it, uh, in one place, I'm sure a lot of people have that same question in other places. So what better way to do it than over a couple of beers, as they say up here. And so to Mike, here Cheers. we go. Cheers, my friend. To episode 10. And here we go with our first question, all right, is the question about how do you handle programming with split versus full body routines? So Mike, I'll let you take the floor first and I'll chime in. So I would say for 85 to 90% of my athletes, is full body routines. And, and I think one of the reasons why is, is we can just get a lot more done in that amount of time. I've heard Mike Boyle talk about it. He uses the same method. He talks about the amount of work that you can get in, in a certain amount of time. And when you're, when you're trying to just squeeze an upper body, you have to take more rest. So when we use total body lifts, um, we can get just a lot more work done in that same amount of time. And in addition to that, uh, people don't get too sore when they're you know, doing a leg day or, or when they're doing an arm day. That really doesn't happen in our gym. So, because we, we don't have the luxury if we're working with performance athletes, they can't be sore, especially with my athletes, with fighters and, and combat athletes. We can't do leg day and then have them show up tomorrow and they can't move. So for me, I primarily use um, total body days. Um, occasionally, I will do some splits here and there, but for the most part, um, we focus on total body days. Yeah, and I'm in a similar situation just because of the population. So the first question is always, what is your goal? Now, the only time that I would recommend a split is if you are doing, if you're looking for hypertrophy and you're looking for specific bodybuilding, because there's there's minimum, we always talk about minimum thresholds and, and what we've got to, got to meet and that minimum effective dose for hypertrophy. You need to get a certain amount of volume in, and the only way you're going to get that volume is if you have uh, you're not going to be able to get that much volume in your lower half, as an example, if you only if you have to get all the rest of your body in that same day. And so, because if not, you'd be training for three hours. And we know for hypertrophy, there's that there's that tipping point. Once you get about to 45 minutes to an hour, if you're a natural athlete, that that all the hormonal stuff is going to start to to drop level off from an anabolic standpoint and get surpassed from a catabolic standpoint. So there's just a time issue. So that's the only reason why we would have to go to split, and that's specifically for muscle building hypertrophy. Um, the other point is most people you know, that we're dealing with, whether it's, it's adult professionals or it's athletes, they just don't physically have the time to do that. 
Meaning that, especially now, let's say a lot of my football teams are in season. We get to lift twice a week and I get maybe a half hour with them. So I have to get a lot covered in a short period of time. So not only do I need to do full body, but even the exercises I choose need to try to cover a lot of ground at once. So uh, for example, like a, a, a deadlift or, or um, a standing overhead press, those kind of things are gonna cover a lot of ground and check a lot of boxes. Whereas I can't do as much isolated work and specific work. So it really comes down to time. And then you bring up a great point is, are your clients okay with walking around being sore and, and a little bit of dysfunctional? When I mean dysfunctional, not what most people think of it, meaning that they're not gonna be able to go full speed. That's not an option for an athlete, and it's not an option for, uh, for most people who are going about their everyday lives, who have kids and have to, to, to go about their, they don't want to be limp, you know, limping around like when we were in our early 20s and we just blasted pecs for an hour, right? So uh, that's, that's a big, big factor to consider. All right, next question. Uh, this one I'm gonna also let you start off with because this was a specific one about developing punching power, right? Um, since you work with a lot of fighters and asking about the the tool that you would use, whether you use lean towards dumbbells, barbell, um, dumbbells, um, medicine balls, or bands. All right, so with this, there's a, there's a couple different directions to go, but the first thing that I, I really focus on is, before we try to improve the quality and the strength of their rotation is, can they resist rotation? So one of the things that I like to do is, I'll put them in rotational positions and do some isometrics there. Just like someone would do like a pull-off press, I'll do the same thing, I'll get them back where they're coiled, I'll work from there and then eventually it turns into a dynamic movement. But here are a few things when it comes to punching power and actually improving rotational power. Um, one is you have to have quality uh, connection to the ground. You need to make sure that you are producing power and you're putting that through the ground. If that doesn't happen, it's not gonna make a difference whatsoever. Think about someone knocking someone out in boxing versus in hockey. How many one punch knockouts do you see in hockey? You rarely see any. It's because they don't have the ability to get force through the ground because they're they're on skates. So the first thing is creating force into the ground. The second thing is creating enough stiffness so you can translate that power through the torso and express it through the upper extremities. Now, my favorite tools to do that with are medicine balls um, and light bands. But when I am selecting the implements, it needs to be light because we do not want to alter the mechanics to the point where they're looking like they're laboring. Four to six pound medicine balls are really, really good for improving velocity and punching power in general, but also a lot of core strength and a lot of lower body strength because they need to be able to transfer that load through the ground, through the torso, and express through the upper extremities. Okay, so two points I would add in is number one, if you want to YouTube something, look up, uh, they used to have the show ESPN Sports Science, it's an awesome show. Yeah. They actually looked at, they, they looked at punching power and when they looked at EMG of the entire body, what do you think was the muscle that had the most uh, recruitment in, 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 in when they were impacting? It was the glute on the same side, right? So if I'm punching with the right hand, it was your right side glute that created the most uh, act activity. So you, this is generating, it's a tail of the whip when you see what's, what's going on in the hand. And then the second thing is you have to look at with your mode of resistance is where is resistance coming from? If I have dumbbells, it's trying to pull straight down. So if I'm trying to punch out, that's not resisting that actual movement where a band or a cable would be much more applicable to that. Now the medicine balls is a little bit of an exception because I can actually release that um, and it's going to be a little less stress okay, on the joints and also the, the resistance curves, the band's getting harder as I'm punching. Um, it's not a bad thing necessarily um, and we may want that accommodating for this and so they learn to accelerate through the end of the punch. But those are two of the big considerations I would have when you're looking for punching power. And then even a step back, if you always look at our process, 
first thing is before we can worry about, and I love that you backed it up to the isometric, before we can worry about can you create, you know, uh, tension in, in isolation and isometric is can you even create rotation? Like can you even separate and create trunk movement, you know, right to left with a fixed pelvis? Can you ro rotate your pelvis over fixed shoulders? Because any rotational sport, whether it's golf, whether it's throwing a baseball, it has to generate from the ground, like you said, it initiates at the pelvis, then through the trunk, then through the shoulders, then through the hand, that's your kinematic sequence. So if you can't sequence that right, it doesn't matter how much, you know, you have a 60 pound dumbbell going back and forth, you're not translating from the ground. And I think sequencing is key here because one of the things people miss is they just throw a medicine ball. They don't think about, you know, where is that load coming from? One of the things that I'll teach early on is, is almost like a small lateral lunge to get that weight shift. And then I'll teach them to make sure that as they extend that hip, there's that sort of slow motion sequence. And then I have them start to increase their speed eventually because what you don't want to do is you don't want to release the ball before the hip does what it's supposed to do. Then you're not going to have any power. So it's not just about flinging medicine balls. It's about using a medicine ball to express the kinetic movement in that ground force, you know, through the, through the body and eventually release through the hand. So sequencing is super important. The other thing I would add too is I love doing like like straight arm cable chops with this. Yeah. It's, it's right off to the side. And the one thing I'll teach and the cue that I'll give all the time is imagine if that cable snapped, would you fall? Right? Because the last thing you want is like, great, it's in a bar fight. You can you lunge at somebody and punch and fall down. But in a real fight, if I punch and get myself out of position, that's an uppercut waiting to get me knocked out. So can you stay balanced and stay within your center when you're generating that power? And the cable chop is a good way for people kind of get that connection. Absolutely. All right, so speaking of power, we had a question about um, how do you format reps and sets when it comes to explosive exercises? You want to take that or you want me to take that? Um, I'll, I'll start off with some of the, the principles, right, is the principles are once you get beyond five, your quality is going to kind of go down. So I know there are people out there doing sets of 20 power cleans and it's like, stop being power a long time ago after about the third or fourth one. So um, and it depends on your, your duration of the movement. If you're doing a short, talking about a medicine ball, so if I'm doing a, uh, you know, a short punch with the medicine ball and it's just coming from my chest to the wall, you know, that I can get away with, you know, a few more reps than I would say a power clean, right? Um, but the, the reps are often way too high. Um, so I want to keep that low, five or less, and usually two or three for quality. Um, and then the other problem is that the rest is way too low. Like you can't get tired and get powerful at the same time. So if you are training for true explosiveness, you need to allow for ample recovery, whether you're doing sprints or you're doing, you know, medicine ball throws. There needs to be enough rest in between. And I don't know if there's any ratios you like. And obviously it's relative to the fitness level of the individual. For some people, a four to one, they're bored by the time you get yeah. there and they're totally recovered. Where some people four to one, they're still huffing so there's a little bit of individuality in there, but they have to be fully recovered, whether you're using heart rate is your, is your guide, breathing is your guide, um, and, and obviously their level of fitness. Yeah, I think uh, another thing to consider is even before we get to power, um, if you're not strong to begin with, you're not going to be able to express power. I always use the idea of, you know, try to watch a nine-year-old, you know, uh, soccer, uh, nine-year-old female soccer player throw a medicine ball. There's not much power going on there, right? So. Not, not to say that medicine ball throws can be a, a decent exercise, but I would spend time getting them just stronger in general before we do anything else and then go from there. But um, less is more when it comes to power, absolutely. Um, if you are huffing and puffing and you're tired, it's not power or it's not speed development. It's just not. 
Um, if anything, what you should feel after power work is you should feel sharp. You should feel like you just took a, you know, um, like a strong shot of coffee, right? You should feel energetic because your nervous system should be smoking. But if you're huffing and puffing, you probably overdid it. And in my world, when it comes to, you know, working on power development, but also having that ability to replicate that power over time, we program it in a way where we start off with power, but then we have to work on power and the capacity of that power, also known as alactic capacity. So we'll go from a true power template and eventually that will turn into a capacity-based template because the sport that, that I work with primarily, uh, mixed martial arts, requires the athletes to produce power over and over again. And if we can maintain the highest power up, but over time, that's where you have a huge advantage against your opponents. And that's where your, your tech can be really helpful. So like using like a push band, yep. right, will allow me to say if we're doing trap bar deadlift jumps, Right, and I can measure. Okay, we got a, you know, a, we got a 1.8, a 1.8, 1.6. Okay, got to come bring it up. 1.4. All right, you're done. Yeah. Right, because now you're going to get good at being slow, and that's the way we can regulate for quality to make sure we're still training that intent for power. Um, and then the other thing you brought up, I like, is where it is in the workout. Um, if you're going to, this requires a high degree of, of nervous system activity, so you got to do it generally earlier. Or what also works real well is obviously doing contrast methods and using it within your strength. So that would be going immediately from a, a heavy bench press right to an explosive push-up works real well in contrast. So we can kind of take that same movement and mimic it. You know, NASM had their, um, they had all those different things, stabilization equivalent training and so forth. We match a movement to, to match something for stability and they also had the same thing for, uh, for power development where you do a strength thing immediately followed by that. But a lot of people have used that along the way. Yeah, it's basic potentiation, right? We've got contrast, tr French contrast training, post-activation potentiation. Guys, really what all that stuff is just manipulating the nervous system, right? We're just trying to take advantage of the fact that if we do the right things, we're hopefully going to get the desired output. And generally what that will look like is a heavy grind paired with some sort of um, body weight or even assisted base movement where we can work at both both opposite ends of the spectrum. Sometimes it's it's a heavy grind paired with a body weight explosive movement. Sometimes there's something in the middle like a tricep. A lot of the times in French contrast training, you'll see someone do a trap bar deadlift, a dumbbell jump, and then a body weight jump where we actually start to reduce the overall load because of uh, the, the amount of stress that's going into the system. And yes. That's, or the way you go into assisted, right? Yeah. You know, to hold a band that's that's above them in a rack and jump so now it's assisting their jump so they feel what it feels like to be really springy yeah and then they'll progressively load that and then unload it again so there's a lot of different manipulations and again you're just messing with the nervous system and for someone to be explosive who's never done anything explosive they have to know what that feels like yeah and so the assisted work works really well i think a lot of people too just quickly don't understand what true neurological fatigue feels like they know what being tired feels like because they push themselves or maybe push the heavy sled but when you're getting neurologically fatigued, it's definitely a, a different feeling overall. It, you should, you, I always tell people, if you've done a good power speed workout, you should walk out feeling like you wanted to do more, you had definitely had more on the table, and you should almost, but at the same time, you almost feel like you just took a test. Like yeah. you just took an exam. It was hard. There's a lot of that's your, that's your nervous system, yeah. right? So, um, all right, a lot of power questions, or, or somewhat related questions. So. What about doing plyos or speed and agility training for clients over 40? Like I know you have a huge adult group fitness population. How many of them qualify or even want that work? Well, so, so it's all relative, right? I think of power for people that are a little bit older is just moving quicker in general because it's a continuum, right? It's not like we're gonna get um, 
you know, we're not gonna get Tendo units for our group training program and see what that looks like. But I do believe that one of the things we lose as we get older is, 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 our, is our ability to just move quickly, power in general. And um, part of that is foot speed as well. And that just has to do with uh, moving quickly. But you know, just what I like to do is if I am gonna program like a box jump at the beginning of a training session, I'll do a box jump, but it, my biggest thing is if you're gonna jump to it, you have to show me that you can land from it as well. So I'll get out a 12 inch box, have them do it, you know, jump, stick the landing, and then have them step off, stick the landing again. So not only are we focusing on a little bit of rate of force development, but we're also focusing on landing mechanics and deceleration, which is super important uh, for, for everybody. Yeah, any, any of that type of work, I always start with deceleration first. And yeah. then you, whether it's single leg, split stance, or open stance, and then eventually adding multiple heights. Um, now, again, going through the progression is to say, well, do they have the, the mobility and movement control and be able to get to those position shapes and postures? Can their ankle actually get normative ranges of motion before we go and, and load that? Now, once they do, the irony is, is they, they, they get confused because they say, all right, now that once I've got your ankle mobile, I need to create stiffness. And they're like, wait, I thought we just did all this work to make it unstiff. Yeah. Stiffness is your ability to produce force when you go run. Because go to any beer league softball game and you're gonna see knee braces, you're gonna see um, guys blowing out their Achilles and blowing out their hamstrings right and left, okay? And so the Achilles in particular gets some of the worst blood flow of any tissue in your body, right? Gets very leathery and now you go to produce force quickly and you don't have that spring, you don't have that elasticity in there and that ability to create some stiffness from the foot up through the ankle to transmit force through the calf, and boom, you just you know, pop a calf or, or, or even worse, you, you, you uh, tear an Achilles. Then when you talk moving up the chain into the hamstring, the, the sequence that we use when we sprint is completely different than we use when we jog. So even you get that guy who goes to the gym and, and jogs on the, the treadmill for five miles a day, and then tries to leg out a, a single in a softball game, blows out his hamstring, because the rate of force production is not there. And how quickly you can access that is incredibly important. And then that goes into talking about, you know, this population, a lot of the conversations I've been having with this, um, this group, this say 35 to 65 year old group is that it's interesting because they're looking through two windows, right? They're looking through the rear window with uh, the Al Bundy approach, right? I scored four touchdowns in the state championship Uncle game. Uncle Rico, Al Bundy, right? it's, it's exactly. all the same. It's, yeah, I, and coach would have put me in with one of the states. Yeah. So um, they're going through, why am I not that guy anymore? And they can't be that guy, and they're actually the most dangerous, right? Because they think they are their former self, but a lot is, a lot has diminished since then. Um, so, but on the other side, you look out the front window, you're, you're just as close to 65, 70 as you were as to 18 and 20. So now we know there's a certain amount of drop off in your, horm in your hormones, in your mobility, in, in, in joint stiffness, all these things as you age. So if at that age, if you still can't do some simple tasks, balance being one of them, right? Your, your chance of being uh, someone who's a candidate for a fall when you're 60, 70 you know, years old is significantly higher. We know the stats are pretty scary. Like, listen to what Peter Atia talks about. Like, with once you're over 70, if you have a fall and you have to get it, you know, you, you break a hip or something like that, your, your chance of, of dying in the next year is like 25%. Yeah, it's, it's, it's through the roof. It's really scary. So agility for those people are, can you step off a curb, Yeah. right? Can you react that, how many times, you know, your dog pulls you very quickly. Can you, can you actually access, 
your muscles quickly, that's agility, that's the ability to, to react to stimulus that's in an uncontrollable environment. And so that is incredibly important for that population. Now, it, you know, unfortunately that's not looked at and there needs to be a very steady progression based on where they're coming in at. But yes, you absolutely have to address it. Does it mean they're going through speed ladders and, and uh, doing you know, uh, resistant sprints? Not necessarily, but there's, there's a lot to be had in terms of getting them to have true agility and rate of force development. Absolutely, and here's a simple way that you can approach that with your clients. Um, a lot of people, you know, poo-poo on, on agility ladders and, and speed ladders, and, and I understand I why. Want. And, and But here, here's the one thing that I will say for, for older adults, is when you get them doing very basic patterns that are just even at a slow rate, um, you, get some, you start to get a little bit of elasticity and tissue adaptation in the lower extremities. So I don't use the ladder for developing speed or agility, I use it for tissue adaptation, getting them on their toes and getting acclimated to that. And eventually, I'll put them in a scenario, I just had one of my uh, clients kind of move over to this, we have three cones, and these cones aren't even cones on the ground, they're like four feet, like upright dowels. And our agility is, um, that's cone one, that's cone two, that's cone three, all you gotta do is I say it, you just touch it and go back to your center and wait for the next thing. And really that's true agility training because it's a response to an external stimulus. But here's the scoop, you can't just dive right into that stuff, so you have to find a way to get a little bit of tissue adaptation first, and it could be, with a ladder, it could be marching, it could be skipping, it could be doing some light sled work, um, it could be doing mountain climbers against the wall, not like the metabolic mountain climbers where you're trying to get a cardio effect, but working on loaded plantar flexion and uh, dorsiflexion in an extended hip position, that's, that's where you can start to get some nice tissue adaptation. Ladders plus sand equals Instagram likes. I think the one um, underutilized tool that is magic is the jump rope. Yeah. yeah, because it's a self-limiting thing. Like you're not gonna once you get tired, you're just gonna catch the rope on your feet, and it's not you're not gonna generally get to where you get really crappy and hurt yourself with it. So it's a great self-limiting tool. And honestly, if you at any age, I firmly believe if you can watch someone that jump ropes well, they're gonna be pretty athletic. And I'm not. We also know what jumping, what it looks like when people do not jump rope, and they they you know they jump and they hit the ground. And, yeah, exactly. And they're slamming around. But you see other people just bombing through, and they have a rhythm. And it's, it's beautiful to watch. And that's something that is so easy to do. Literally, a jump rope is, is you know, what is what does a jump rope cost? 20, 30 bucks? I mean, it's-, it's 20 bucks? What kind of jump ropes you get? Dude, I get the, the high-end jump ropes, man. The ball bearing. We gotta talk to the people that uh, perform better, get you a better deal. All right, so next one I know is in your wheelhouse. It's programming for energy system development, right? And that's kind of become the, the, the next cool thing of, of using a lot of big fancy terms that Quite frankly, ninety percent of trainers don't understand. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> what is it, what is it? So instead of using a bunch of fancy physiological terms like, tell me how you go about the approach systematically of okay, how do I make sure this person meets the needs of their their energy system? Well, so the first thing I always try to work on with my clients is uh, strength and aerobic base. Um, those are the two qualities that tend to stick around the longest. Um, and then from there, depending on, <clears throat> excuse me, what the athlete is looking to do, then we can start to, to focus on certain things. But here, here's something to understand when it comes to energy system development. It's not like you can turn, it's not like you have like an a lactic light switch, a lactic light switch, and an aerobic light switch, and you can just turn one on and the others don't come on. They all come on at the same time, but what, depending on what you're doing within that training session, is that system is going to sort of be signaled to activate depending on what you're trying to do. If you're doing five to eight second repeats, well, your main source of fuel is ATP, so that's gonna be more like a, a lactic power template. 
So if you're looking to get someone really, really fast, then you've got to keep the majority of your sets, um, you know, seven to eight seconds if you're looking to get powerful, and then you have to rest accordingly. And, you know, you can get a lot of the basic work to rest guidelines from, um, you know, a lot of the books are like uh, block periodization, um, uh, a lot of different periodization books. Joel Jameson in Ultimate MMA Conditioning does, awesome, yeah. does a really good job at outline, uh, sort of outlining the templates. So here's the scoop. When it comes to designing energy systems in general, it's a continuum, and that's the one thing people miss, is they don't understand that if you are doing max, max effort work, you have to start with small increments, five to seven seconds. And there are some basic guidelines that we like to use, but eventually, as you start to add duration to those sprints, the guidelines change. Because, um, you know, a lactic capacity and a lactic power rules are very, very different than lactic capacity and lactic uh, power rules. So you have to understand that when you're trying to either target any of these, it's a continuum. So if you're gonna eventually want someone to do max effort 30 second repeats, you have to, they have to first do five second and seven, 10, and work their way up because that's gonna be such a shock to the system. A max effort 30 second sprint sucks. And it's absolutely terrible. So regardless of what you're trying to do, build to it. It's not gonna happen right away. You should not get a brand new client and go, I'm gonna do lactic power work and have them do you know, a 40 second max effort sprint with two and a half minutes off and they're gonna be puking in the corner. So you have to play by the guidelines that were given to us through physiology and periodization. And it can be very, very confusing, but I'll tell you this, here's what it boils down to when it comes to people uh, programming in general. Genpop does not need energy system development. I would say the only athletes that really need to be focusing on certain things are people that are competing at a very, very high level and getting paid for it. Yeah, and, or and, college. And, and with that, you have to look at the dynamics of the sport. You have to know a little bit about the sport. Okay, okay what, is, what is the general energy systems you're gonna use, you know, look at, you know, uh, as an example, I have a, a pro soccer player I'm working with now who's coming back off an injury and we have to work on conditioning. You know, knowing that when he reports to his club, you know, looking at some stats of how many, you know, he used kilometers, but how many kilometers, you know, the average European team covers, he has to be ready to do that, mm -hmm. you know, once he shows up for practice. So if I don't do, if I don't prepare him for that, that's, that's on me. Um, but your point to, it, the is specificity is the deeper you go down the rabbit hole with really any physical attribute, you're going to sacrifice something else. 100%. Right? If you really want to get hypertrophy, you may have to give away a little mobility. You may have to give away some conditioning, right? Mm -hmm. But that's the sacrifice you make. If you're a bodybuilder, it's going to go stand on stage in your underwear. You have to you have to be able to do that. So, yeah. um, does the average person need that? No. So, I, what I actually really love in terms of the person who's not in a very specific, or even if they're the person who's who's an athlete, but they're off season, is, you know, I think Andy Galpin on on, um, on Huberman's podcast did a really good, you know, elegant job of kind of explaining, like, the bulk of your work, the bulk of your week should be, you know, generally low intensity, you know, whether you want to call it zone two, you know, submaximal, basically below a conversational, you know, conversational pace or below, um, you know, I know Maffetone uses the, the 180 minus your age, and basically just get really good and efficient at that. So let's say, you know, for, for easy math, you're gonna go out and you're gonna run for a half an hour. You run a five, you know, you run a 12 minute mile, you're gonna cover five miles in that half hour. But your rules are, like I have a, a, a guy who's getting back into competitive running now, he's in his 60s, he's run multiple marathons, and I say, but he needs to build back up his miles. I say, 
you're gonna, here's your low threshold rules. Number one is if you have something like a Morpheus trap or something like that where you have to stay in your blue, you can't go into your green. And for those of you who know what that is. If you have just a heart rate monitor, then you have to stay within that Mapitone number. Mm -hmm. Or we, if you don't have any of that, or just use your breathing. Mm -hmm. If you can stick with nasal breathing, that's generally a pretty good you know, uh, uh, guideline. And you have to stay there. So if that may mean you're at a 12 minute mile, now here's the thing is, is that if you can do that and now next week you get down to and a half you get down to an 11 and a half minute mile at this following the same parameters you're just more efficient you can do more work at the same low level then you need to have some of that mid-range but that's unfortunately where we spend too much of our time right yeah. uh, that mid-range where we, if we get one or two days a week of that or maybe 30 on 30 off type of stuff where we're in that you know not maximal but not sub-maximal where we can't really hold the conversation you know, those kind of intervals, those are great, but you don't need a tech, you know, heck a lot of that. And then at least once a week, you should, you know, do something that is something you cannot do for more than a minute. Yeah. Like you max out your heart rate. Now, not everybody can do that day one. Yeah. Once they've been, <laughs> don't, don't, don't try to do that. Yes, day one. Don't erg bike somebody to death on day one. But um, at some point, once you've developed a base of fitness and you can handle those bottom two zones, one day a week, you should go all in. And that being said, that day is what, eight to 12 minutes? maybe six minutes, if yeah. that, you know, so, um, and those are hard intervals where you're getting as hard, as high as you can, and the problem with that is that there's not a lot of modes that can get people there, right, because they'll, they'll fatigue out from a muscular standpoint, oh, yeah. their heart rate gets the max, right, so that's where, like, a, an echo bike or something like that comes in, in handy, um, because you taste ammonia about, <laughs> about 10 seconds in. Well, yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's one of those things, it's, uh, that's another thing, too, before you get into specific energy system stuff and you're doing high intensity max effort stuff. Before that, a lot of, um, a lot of muscle endurance work is really, really good. Um, high intensity continuous training is something that Joel Jameson has talked about where you can do sled drags for a certain amount of time or you can do, you know, just even step ups for a certain amount of time. And, and uh, you know, it, it's not the most fun stuff and it's not the most sexy, but let me tell you, it builds the foundation. So the limiting factor no longer becomes muscle endurance, it becomes something else and i have to, that off the I have to say that sleds are probably my favorite version of that yes the elegance of the sled there's no eccentric component yeah so as much as you feel like death and you feel like your 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 quads are going to fall off the bone mm -hmm. once that sensation goes goes past you're good yeah, you're like you're right. not going to be sore the next day so it's a great way to build that up mm -hmm. um and not beat people up and get a whole lot of bang out of you know out of that so um, let's continue on because we're running out of beer and we got question, more questions to answer. Um, so I'm going to jump over this next one and we had a question about avoiding pulled hamstrings. Heard that uh, emphasizing lower abdominal strength, glutes and hamstring strength uh, is important. Uh, what do we think about that and what are some of our favorite movements? Well, uh, I'm going to take it from a little different spot and, and, and here's why. Um, Usually when we start to get hamstring strains, it's usually because we have a rapid increase in load, volume, or intensity. We didn't build up properly. Um, it happens all the time in the fall with soccer and football players, right? Hip flexors and hamstrings. Why? Because they've been lifting and they've been doing a little bit of training. That's fine, but they've never worked at max effort. And they've never worked at max effort repetitively. And then adding in everything else that goes along with it, like your skill work, um, I think it's usually too much too soon. So like. You shouldn't be surprised if, you know, you've never sprinted all summer and then you go to sprint and on the third one, your hammy starts to lock up. Like, listen, 
you're doing something that your body's not acclimated to and, and you, you're gonna get that response. So um, I think that's something to think about is, what are you doing before that? I think that's a huge one. And then we can talk about movement, we can talk about um, making sure you're training what you should be training, which you know, in, in, in a lot of the cases when it comes to hamstring issues, um, making sure that you have, let's just call it quality hip mobility. So when you do go and extend the hip, um, you're getting some, you know, some work from the glutes and they're actually coming to the party a little bit. A lot of the times when people are super, super tight, they go to extend their hip, their hamstring does two to three times the, the work and then it gets overloaded and that's when we come and we have an issue. Um, it's, you know, also known as synergistic dominance. It's a really, really big word, but essentially um, it's, it's uh, again, a scenario where you could be overusing one thing during a specific pattern and that's why it's so important to get good quality hip extension and all that other stuff. So when it comes to exercises, I'm a big fan of like uh, single leg deadlifts. One of my, probably one of my favorite exercises for, for athletes in general um, to really try to bulletproof their posterior chain. And one of my other ones is I'm a huge fan of uh, front foot elevated either isos or split squats to really focus on quality hip flexion, hip extension and stability through that range of motion. So a couple things I would add to that because I agree with all that. I think that there's um, number one, it had the ramp up period uh, is usually really poor, especially when you talk about preseason with athletes. Um, two is if we look at kind of the, the, the levels we look at, first we look at your competency. Do you have the ability to, to get the positions and shapes and postures you need to for your sport? Um, and then with that competency, looking at mobility, but also stability and strength. And we have to look at it with the hamstring. It's, it's, it's really tricky because you have to look at it at the knee. It's a two joint muscle where you have to look at the knee, you have to look at the hip, and certain things are going to be more emphasis on one versus the other. So, um, you know, just doing a bunch of ball hamstring curls is going to be, a, a, you know, it's a great exercise, but if you're not also addressing it at the hip and being able to really manage your pelvis well. If you watch, like, if you go on and watch most people do, you know, the, these Nordic or partner-assisted Nordic, you know, hamstring curls, they're cranked way into extension and their heads poke forward and and they're really in bad positions. And so um, that's not necessarily what we want to be in if we're sprinting or doing those sort of things. So um, being able to, to, to control your pelvis and have that in a good position. Um, asymmetries here are relevant to uh, the, the force output that you're gonna have. Like if my 300 pound offensive lineman has a minor, uh, you know, five degree or even a 10 degree dorsiflexion asymmetry, it's not gonna make that much of a difference. He's gonna step, step, get in fight for three seconds and then be done, mm -hmm. right? If that kid who runs the four five, who's the, who's the receiver, has that asymmetry, something's gonna blow out because almost every time I've, I've seen a hamstring, there's some asymmetry somewhere that was glaring that got missed. Um, and then I think the, the uh, lack of consideration of training in, in deceleration, yeah. right? Can you put on the brakes? Because that's when you hear, uh, the first question I ask, and when anybody comes to me and they say, okay, my hamstring, my hip, my knee, whatever it is, they say, okay, what were you doing when you did it? Well, I was going into a break, okay? Or I tried to, I tried to decelerate, or I was uh, trying to accelerate, or I was trying to open it up, or whatever it was. And then you also have to consider the plane of movement, right? So um, if you have people that say, I was going into a break and I was trying to cut left, right? That's a different animal, right? There's a rotational component there, whether it's a mobility, whether it's a stability, whether it's whether it's a training component, they've only trained straight ahead, you have to look at the plane of movement as well. So all those things come into consideration. There's no magic. You could look at, you could pull up research papers that say Nordic curls save, you know, stop all the hamstring injuries. And save then the world. <laughs> and, then you, and then you find another one that says it had no impact, right? So um, 
that's because what else did they do in their training that complemented that certain thing? So I wish there was there was one simple thing we could do. Yeah. So one piece of advice that I one thing that I think about when I'm training hamstrings, uh, spe specifically with you know field athletes that are going to be running, cutting, deceleration is is you want to train knee flexion in every available degree of hip flexion and hip extension. So if you're on like a seated hamstring curl when you're in hip flexion, it's going to load the hamstrings very very different than one hip in extension and one hip in flexion, right? So we have all of these degrees of hip and knee flexion together, and in order to be fast, you kind of have to own them all, and you have to train them all. So that's why there's there's varying degrees of things that you can you should consider um, when it comes to designing a program that will hopefully keep your athletes as healthy as possible. The other thing that's incredibly impactful that we didn't touch on is like you need to see what they look like running. Yeah. So if if you have somebody that is very B side dominant, and so for the people, you know, it's a track term. If you cut your body and it in half from front to back, you know, it goes sliced down from your ear to your ankle, from front to back. Everything on the back half of that is your B side. Everything on the front has is your A side. That's kind of how you get the A skip, B skip. Mm -hmm. If you have somebody who's very B skip dominant or B side dominant, there are a lot of butt kick, not a lot of knee drive. Those people tend to have the stride that heel strikes a lot. Mm -hmm. Those heel strikers are much more apt to yank hamstrings. Yeah. So we have to be super careful of that. And that may be a mechanical thing that we need to work on their, their, their actual sprint mechanics. And that's something to consider as well. All right. I think we've got time for one more here. This one's a good one. It's a little mini case study, so to speak. Uh, this person says, I'm a physical therapist. And I'm stuck with a client who's ones in their active straight leg raise, right? So for those of you not familiar with the FMS system, it's basically a, a supine laying on your back, straight leg raise, where you know both legs are out straight. We want to try to keep the feet neutral, pointing to the sky. We got to see how high can we bring one leg without having the other leg be affected. And um, you know, there's cut points we want to look for with the, you know as far as minimums and, and um, optimums. But this person's basically saying, I tried. Strap stretches, leg lowering drills, hip flexor stretches, nothing seems to work. What do you suggest? What do I do? Want me to take that? Well, we'll both take it. We'll both take it. So it's, um, it's kind of on a tape for us. It, it, it really is. It's a low hanging fruit here. So for us in the, in the world of, of, of FMS and the, the way that we've sort of been using that system and, and obviously in general, um, mobility first, stability second, and then everything else sort of comes on top of that, right? So. Right now, we've, we've got a strategy here, it's all mobility. So all that's really being done is a bunch of stretching. But there's nothing to hit save on that document. There's nothing to um, say, hey, listen, we've improved this mobility, but how do we make it stick? And that's where you have to actually provide someone with stability in their newfound mobility. I know it's a lot of uh, lingo here, but um, you're just missing a piece of the puzzle, right? It's kind of like if you go get a massage and you feel really, really good, and then a week later you feel like you need another massage. And that's simply because we've made a temporary change, but that temporary change is not actually, it's not really sticking around because we haven't done anything to reinforce that newfound range of motion. So I think in a case like this, we've done the mobility work, um, and hopefully if you've done the mobility work, you can see a temporary change in that mobility, a short-term adaptation. And then if you want that long-term adaptation to actually happen, you have to find a way to load that and convince the nervous system that, hey, you know that newfound range of motion that we just had? Well, we need to keep that, so we're gonna do some exercises to enforce, to, to reinforce that. And that and also is you know, uh, static motor control, dynamic motor control, and eventually into performance and the general basic movement patterns. So this has been an area that, and I don't know if you found this, is that a lot of the cases that get sent to me that are 
I've been everywhere and nothing has helped, right? Where I went to chiropractor, I went to acupuncturist, I went to physical therapist, and nothing seems to help me. Mm -hmm. What I, and, and this was something I wouldn't have seen 10 years ago, this is why we constantly want to keep learning, is that almost all of those people were motor control issues. They were stability issues. And that's often overlooked in our traditional kind of dogmatic approach of, you know, most of our treatments in, in, in clinical care are mobility bias, mm -hmm. right? It's, and our assessments. And, and our assessments, right? And so we're looking at how much range of motion do you have? And can I regain standard range of motion? Can I get you in positions? And can I get you in, and we're doing this unloaded on a table, right? And so the first thing, you know, I want to gather more information. And, and the two things I look at is something like their, their biting scale, which is just a simple nine point scale. You can do it in about 60 seconds um, and looking at, do they have, are they a person who tends to have a little bit more hypermobility? Huge. Um, and do they have more, is someone who has more joint laxity, right? Because you have that person who's, and generally, I, and I wrote a whole thing on this on my blog of saying, you know, it's just stretching making it worse, is that, um, if you, uh, the biting score, generally, depending on the research, is five or six or higher, is considered hypermobile. Um, and, and so with that, that person uh, who is hypermobile, that may be the only thing saving their joints is that stiffness. So the next question is, is why is it stiff in the first place? And it may be a protective mechanism. And if you go and do a bunch of stretching, you actually make them worse, and now you're making the joints more, more vulnerable. Uh, or maybe you think you're actually stretching soft tissue you're actually creating more joint laxity in a person who's already lax. So the, the first thing is let's, if they're not responding right away to mobility, and I'll know even with the, the assessment by adding a biking criteria and by just kind of looking at the overall um, screen and all their movement assessments to say, okay, well, this person, you know, they, they moved really well, or you can even do certain tests where if like, if you can passively bring their leg up to 90 degrees, but then actively they're at 45, it's not a mobility problem, yeah. right? So it looks um, like a mobility problem. That's the like, problem. Yes, and so they're and they're going to feel the one. They're going to yeah. tell you my hamstrings are stiff, and they're not wrong because their hamstrings are stiffening, but they're stiffening as a protective. That's a, that's almost a symptom because it doesn't. It's not trusting that it's safe to be there. It, it's your hamstrings smarter than you are. Yeah. It's, it's, and so um, what we have to do is look at creating control within those. And so with those people. That's where it's starting off with some fundamentals like uh, some basic segmental rolling, um, getting them to learn how to initiate to move from the center out and getting them to disassociate certain parts of their body. Getting them to learn pelvic position and positions like quadruped or half kneeling is a good way to learn what does neutral even feel like, can you own that? And then from there, can you smoothly transition when you do things more dynamic, like you said, kind of starting statically. And then, from there, obviously, you have to transition up onto the feet because if it doesn't transition there, then what good was it? You can't treat the table wall star. So uh, that's where you have to look at kind of outside of the box. Is the biggest thing that I see people miss is that it's a motor control issue. It's a stability yeah. issue, right? Now, if it's a stability issue, and here's the next question I ask, and this can even go into the hamstring thing, is I'll say, okay, when your when you feel your hamstring, if you went out to run right now, would you feel it on the first sprint? Or would you feel it on the tenth sprint, right? Well, if they say, and this, these two questions kind of tie together, if they say, no, I feel it as soon as I sprint, okay, well then that's something that's a competence, movement competency issue. We're not getting good sequencing, we're not getting good firing, there may be, you know, there may be some tissue damage in there and he still needs to heal. There's a lot of things from a movement competency issue. If they say, no, I, I don't feel it until I get in the fourth quarter, until I get to my tenth sprint, 
it's a capacity issue, mm -hmm. right? It's a capacity issue. They're just not fit enough to handle what they're asking their body to do. So that's the ramp up period that they're not ready for, that they can't do what they need to do. Um, side story with this is I had a uh, football, local high school football team. You know what they used to do is their sprint program. And I think it just sounded cool and it kind of, kind of rhymed. They used to do 40 40s. Ah. 40-40s. And it was, a, it, it was horrible for the children who had to do it. It was basically child abuse is what it was. Uh, horrible for the kids that had to go through it. It was a wonder for my business because they had more <laughs> just, calf, uh, ankle, hip flexor, and hamstring issues than any team I've ever seen. And it was just this insanity, like not understanding, going back and tying it all together, energy systems, not understanding power and explosiveness. Like, watch a guy after he runs a 40 to make his living, right, in, a, in an NFL combine, and that guy needs to lay down for the rest of the day, right? Now, um, you're going to do that 39 more times. What do you think number 38 looked like, right? And so that's why there needs to be some level of quality control. So capacity is also the other overlooked thing is, once we've created this competency, do we have the capacity and all those things? Because again, a lot of treatment gets you to the point of I'm weight-bearing and pain-free. You're not ready to go out and play a soccer tournament this weekend. And so how do we ramp that up? And so there's, there's you know, we can go on a whole other podcast and that's probably a good idea, but how do we ramp up and return to play? Yeah. And what are the, the criteria? But I think we've covered a lot of ground. We have covered a lot of ground and it's good to do this in person. and. Uh... You know, we were just getting started, but we're running out of beer, so yeah, I, I, think it, I think it's time to... This is going to be our only, for the people that, you know, that are going to criticize our, our, our habits here, this is the only one we'll have all night, as far, That's as, it. As, far as you know. As far as... <laughs> but this right. has been great. This has been episode 10 of, uh, of the Principles of Performance podcast, and if you have questions you'd like us to answer, we're going to be doing these. Maybe we'll do it every 10th one. We'll be yeah. a good way to do that. Um, you have questions, shoot us a direct message. Uh, on any of our social media. It's uh, Coach Mike Perry on Instagram, but just Mike Perry and on all the others. Um, and myself, Eric Degatti, on, on all the different uh, platforms, as well as you can email us at principlesofprogramdesign at gmail.com, or you can visit us on our website. Um, but keep the questions coming. This works for great conversation, because if you have that question, I'm sure somebody else does as well, and we can answer them. But we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.